Last week, we started a new series called The End, where we're looking at an extremely confusing book, the, the book of Revelation. How many of you were able to, to do what I encouraged you to do this past week and at least read through these first seven chapters of Revelation? Were some of you able to do that? Some weird stuff, isn't it? It's like, what in the world is going on here? But let me remind you of a couple things that I talked about last week. First of all, I said that if you want to take some of the confusion out, don't treat the book of Revelation as a calendar. Instead, use it as a template for how to go through trials and tribulations and suffering today. If you try to use this as a calendar, it's going to be awfully, awfully confusing for you, right? So we, we talked about that. I also said that many people get confused by the book of Revelation because they're using it as a calendar. They end up asking a lot of wrong questions. You ask questions like, you know, when is Jesus returning or are we living in the last days? But I said, we got to learn to ask better questions. So last week I said, don't ask the question of when is Jesus returning? Instead, ask who is this Jesus that is reigning? Today, I want to give you a different question as well. If you're taking notes there this morning, instead of asking this, are we living in the last days? I should instead be asking, how do I survive today? Because when you're going through pain, when you're going through trials, when you're going through various tribulations in your life, you could not care less about all the end time stuff and what the Bible would call, or what we would call in theology, eschatology. That's the big name for studying the end times. When your marriage is falling apart, when your finances are in bad shape, when you've just lost a loved one, or you just got a bad diagnosis from the doctor, you don't care about all that stuff. You want to know, how do I survive today? And so again, use the book of Revelation, not as a calendar, but as this template for how do I survive today? Now, one other thing I want to remind you from, from last week, and I want to share a story with you to help to illustrate it. I think it was either five or six weeks ago. It was actually on a Sunday afternoon. I was done my usual afternoon nap that I take on Sundays because I'm always wore out from this. I had just gotten up and I get a text from my sister. And she says, can you teach Brian Pig Latin? Now, Brian is my brother-in-law, her husband, and he's about my age. And I'm thinking, what in the world does my brother-in-law want to know Pig Latin for? But I texted her back. I said, I don't even know Pig Latin. And I just sort of left it at that. But as I'm sitting there then watching whatever sports I was watching, it was bothering me. Why does Brian want to learn Pig Latin? So I texted her back. I was like, why does Brian want to learn Pig Latin? Here, as it turns out, he's a correctional officer at a prison, and he was, I don't know if he was intentionally eavesdropping on a phone call of one of the prisoners, or if he was monitoring it, or what, but this prisoner was speaking to one of his loved ones using nothing but pig Latin, and Brian wanted to know, what are they saying? Because he wanted to make sure they weren't doing anything illegal. And see, that's a great illustration of what I shared with you last week that the book of Revelation was written by this guy by the name of John. He's one of Jesus' followers. He's one of his disciples. John is in a prison on the island of Patmos in the western part of Turkey, off the coast of Turkey. And he needs to communicate back to these seven churches that he had started about the, the love of Jesus and about how Jesus is going to help you to overcome these trials and temptations and struggles and various things that you're going through, all this pain that you're experiencing. But he can't just come right out and say it. That's why he's in prison to begin with, was because he was preaching Jesus. So he has to come up with a, a sort of a code of, how am I going to communicate back to these churches? And that's what we were saying last week, is this imagery that you see in the book of Revelation. It's this code because the, the Jews and the God-fearing uh, Greeks, they would have gone, oh, he's just talking about the, 
the Old Testament there. Remember what I shared with you last week, that 69% of all the verses in the book of Revelation actually are pointing back to something in the Old Testament. But much of it's obscure passages. It's not like pointing back to the Ten Commandments. It's pointing back to these very obscure passages. And and again, the Jews would go, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. The, The Romans, they would read it and go, what in the world is this rubbish? And they would just sort of pass it aside. But this was John's way of getting around the authorities, like this prisoner that my brother-in-law was guarding. He was trying to get around the authorities. Exact same thing. All right, so with that said, let's jump into it today. We're going to look at the various chapters, uh, chapters 5 through 8 in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to chapter 5, that's where we're going to start. John is writing, and he says this, In the right hand of the one sitting on the throne... I saw a scroll that had writing on the inside and on the outside, and it was sealed. In how many places? It was sealed in seven places. John, he's excited. He knows that this scroll, it's jam-packed with information that he wants to know. But Scripture tells us as we continue to read there that he starts to cry and weep. Because nobody knows what's on the inside, and there's nobody powerful enough to to open it up. But then an angel comes to him and says, don't weep, because there is someone that's powerful enough. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Talking about Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, big, fierce, Powerful, a a lion, a a leader. He's powerful enough to do this. But then in sort of a strange plot twist, when Jesus comes out onto the scene, he doesn't come as a lion, he comes as a lamb. And not just any lamb, a lamb that John says looks as if though it had been slain. Now I shared with you last week sort of an artist's depiction of what John describes here. Let me show it to you again, look at this. This is how John is picturing Jesus as this, this lamb. And, and notice the, the blood that's dripping down on its chest there. And seven eyes and seven horns. This is weird. This is really, really strange. And so I, I want to give you a, a picture today of, of what John is talking about here. Why, why did he describe Jesus this way? Because it's going to help you. Again, we're going to use the book of Revelation as a template of how to get through your own pain, through your own suffering. And this picture helps to tell you how. Now, to, to really understand this, we need to understand something in, in the, uh, uh, again, in theology that's called biblical numerology. And basically, it means this, that, you know, as Americans, we count numbers, don't we? If there's five of something, or ten of something, or a thousand of something, we just say that's how many there is. So we count numbers. The Jews not only counted numbers, but they also weighed numbers. In other words, numbers had a significance to it. It had a spiritual connotation and meaning behind it. Sort of like when you're reading a sentence, you know, if, if you take the number one and just put the number one, it can also look like a lowercase l, can it? Or, or a zero can also look like an O. How do you know if it's a one or if it's an L? How do you know if it's a zero or an O? It's the context. 
right? If you see the word little, and there's that little L at the beginning of little, you know that that's an L, not a one. Even if you write out zero, you know that that's an O at the end of zero, not an actual zero. It's context. And so for the Jews, numbers were the same way because they don't actually have numbers. Letters represented numbers. See, we, we've got two different things. They, they only had letters. And how did you know if a letter represented a number or if it represented a letter? Context. So again, their numbers not only could be counted, but they could be weighed. It, it had this spiritual significance behind it. Let me give you a couple of examples. So seven, seven eyes, seven horns, and we'll get to what the eyes and the horns mean a little bit later. But what does the number seven mean to the Jews? Well, yeah, somebody just said it. It's, it's number of perfection. To them, when, when they would see this, it was perfection. But here's what's really interesting. Not only do numbers mean something, but then when you add numbers together or multiply numbers together, that can mean even more stuff. So, for example, with seven, four plus three equals seven. To the Jews, three is the number of God. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three, that, that number always represented God. The number four, that represents creation. All things in, in creation. That there's north, south, east, and west. There's four seasons. Our bodies were made up of mind, body, soul, and spirit. Four, it, it's the number of creation. And so what John is saying here is that this lamb that was slain, that he is God, three. And he entered into creation, four. And that is perfection. That Jesus is perfect. And, and the horns, and again, we'll explain it a little bit more in just a little bit, but the horns are the power to save, the eyes are the power to see. Why seven? Because he can save perfectly. He can see all things perfectly. God entered into creation. He is perfection and he made things perfect for us. So again, keep in mind that John is writing to these seven churches. These people are real people going through real problems, real situations. And he says, I want to help you through this because of this lamb that was slain. He can help you. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to give you seven different principles that you can follow. Gee, you know, most sermons are three, right? But we had to come up with seven today. Seven principles that you can follow. And we'll use the book of Revelation as, again, a template for how to do all this. So number one there, if you're going through pain, I must take responsibility for my part in the pain that I'm suffering. You've got to take responsibility. For example, if your marriage is falling apart or it already fell apart, what part did you play in that? You're going, no, I didn't play any part in it. I mean, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she said. It was all their fault. No, it wasn't all their fault. Maybe it was 99% their fault, but there was some part that you played in it. And so you have got to take responsibility for the pain that you're bringing on yourself. And again, this isn't just with relationships. This is every area of life. If your health isn't the way that you want it to be and it's falling apart, why? What part did you play in that? 
If your finances are in shambles, what role did you play in that? You've got to take responsibility. What did you do to, to sort of bring this on? Now, to be honest, there's some things in life that you didn't do anything to bring it on. You got hit by a drunk driver. And that's why you're in pain. Somebody robbed you. And that's why you're in pain. You go, I didn't do anything to deserve this, Gilbert. You know what? You didn't do anything to deserve it. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something that hurt somebody else that they didn't deserve it? Have you? Am I the only one? Because I know I have. They, they didn't deserve the, the, the pain that I caused them. And see, what I'm trying to get you to see is that this is just part of sin. That because we're all sinners, we've all messed up, we, we do things, and, and either we bring pain upon ourselves because of the stupid decisions that we make, or just the fact that we live in a sinful world means that there's pain and suffering. And again, we, we think of, of sin as things that you know, other people are doing and they bring things on, but we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So there's consequences for that. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that before? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer is, it doesn't. Because there is no good people. None of us are good. All of us, again, we're sinners. We've messed up. And that's why it's the result of the, the sin of Adam and Eve and, and the sin of all of us that there's pain and suffering and misery in this world. So we've got to take responsibility for that. We can't just say, well, that's somebody else's deal because it's ours. And here's the thing. Even if I could answer, you know, why did I get cancer? Why did my car break down? Why did my finances fall apart? Why did my loved one, you know, have to die? It's still actually not helpful to you. Because even if you know the answer, you're still suffering. You still have the pain. And so instead of asking, why do bad things happen to good people? We should instead ask this. Who has the power to heal me of my sin? Who has the power to heal me and forgive me? of all this pain that I'm going through. Which leads to the seven horns. Again, those seven horns that we saw on the screen there, they represent God's perfect power. It's not just power, it's seven horns. God's perfect power. Again, horns always represent power. And it's this power to save, this power to heal. And so once we've taken responsibility for our own sin, the second thing we need to do is this, I must stop beating myself up. Step one is own your stuff. Own your own junk. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've messed up. But don't live in that. Don't live in the past. You know, so many people, they, they keep asking questions, you know, like, oh, man, what if I hadn't gotten drunk that night? What if I hadn't said those words to that person? What if I hadn't taken that risk? What if I hadn't taken that chance? What if I didn't do that foolish thing that night? ever done that? You ask a lot of what if questions. But instead of asking what if, instead ask yourself what now? Because uh, again, you can't do anything about the past, but you can do something about 
right now. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, John is writing to, to people who already have a relationship with Jesus. And here, here's how he describes them. And he's describing you and I. He says, you have made them, you and I, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Here's what you need to understand. You are not a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You're a saint in the arms of a loving father. As we just sang, he is a good, good father. He loves you. And yeah, we all need to admit our, our sinfulness. We, we need to pray and ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins and come in to be the leader of our lives. But once you have done that, he's forgotten your sin. It's remembered no more. He's separated as far as the east is from the west. He's buried it in the deepest parts of the sea. He doesn't condemn you any longer. So don't condemn yourself. Stop beating yourself up. You can't live there anymore. John says, you're no longer a sinner. You're no longer a slave. You are, you are a priest. You are a, a missionary. You're a servant of God. You're a minister of the gospel. And he has given you the power to go out and change the world. To rule and to reign and, and to bring his kingdom. That his kingdom would come and his will would be done on the earth just as it's being done in heaven. So own your stuff, take responsibility, but then stop beating yourself up about it. Now you got to get these first two down because if you don't have these first two down, you don't stand a snowball's chance with what's happening next. Because what we're about to read, all hell's going to break loose. I mean, havoc is going to come onto the earth. And again, if you don't have these first two, you stand no chance of what's about to happen in Revelation chapter 6. Because what, what happens here is the scroll is started to be cracked open. Jesus is peeling those seals off one at a time. How many were there? There were seven seals. As he starts to peel each of the first four, a, a horse and a horseman come like charging out. And John describes the, this whole scene. And in fact, there was an artist, he put together sort of this uh, rendition of it here, of these four horsemen. It's pretty intense, right? Now, I was talking to Allison. I'm going to embarrass her. She, she was telling me earlier, she said that earlier this week, I got a story to tell you about something I did in the third grade. She was in a Christian school and all the kids had a project to do, like flannel graph or a board of some sort, of anything they wanted, any story in the, in the Bible. And which one did she choose? She chose this one. <laughs> and you know why she chose it as a third grader? She loved My Little Pony. <laughs> she thought these were ponies. <laughs> these are not ponies. <laughs> you know what John's describing here? He's describing war. You're going, okay, good. We're in, we're in the good stuff now. Yeah, let's crack this open. This is what I came to this series for. Is this like the Battle of Armageddon? Is this a battle in, in John's time? Come on, what's going on here? Give, give us the nitty gritty. What, what, what's happening here? Here's the thing. 
Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what war this is describing because this isn't about a calendar war. This is about the effects of war. Again, what what John is, is describing here is for these seven churches is you're going through a spiritual warfare right now. And he wants them to see the effects that, that war have on us. So he uses these four horses, and then the four colors of the horses actually mean something. Notice the guy on the left, on the white horse. He's the leader. Notice he, he's, got the, he's got the helmet on there, and he's got the bow. He, he's, he's the leader. Now, white in the Bible always represents purity. And I don't think that what John is saying here is that he himself, this guy that was going to go into war, that he was pure. But in his mind, why he was going to war was pure. He had convinced himself that going out and, and killing and slaughtering, this is holy, this is just, this is pure. And so along with him comes the next guy. They're on the red horse. That dude looks pretty fierce. And while the white guy there, the, the, the white horse, that's the leader. The red there, that represents the army that he brings along. Notice the sword in his hand. Why is the horse red? Because it's covered in the blood of the enemies that they had slaughtered. Again, in their mind, this is a, a just and noble cause that they're on. But as John continues to, to go along, there's the black horse there. Notice in the left hand of the, the rider, that's a skeleton, in case you can't see that, he's holding scales. And as John describes this scene, he says that this rider is crying out and, and talking about weighing the wheat. Because there's no money left for the food. And going, what in the world is this all about? Did you know that it's been estimated that only 10% of people in all the wars of all time actually died in combat? That 90% of the deaths in war take place because of starvation and famine, take place because of exposure to the elements, take place because of the diseases that the, the soldiers are so susceptible to. And so he's talking about that there's... We're in the midst of this war and the money is, is run out. And then over on the right side there, the pale horse. Notice who's riding. Death. This is death. He's got the sickle in one hand. There's a, a coffin in his wake to pick up all the dead bodies of the people that have been left behind because of this terrible thing called war. War is very indiscriminate in who it kills. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, a soldier, a civilian, rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous. There is a lot of people that die when there's battle. And again, what, what John is describing isn't necessarily a physical battle, although there will be a, a battle in the future. What he's describing is this spiritual battle that, that you and I face every single day because we have a very real enemy called Satan. And Satan is indiscriminate in who he inflicts pain upon. Men, 
Women, boys, girls, rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous, doesn't matter. Satan wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. And John, again, he's talking to these people that he loves. And he wants them to know that you're in a battle. You're in a war here. This isn't a Sunday school picnic that we're going to. And so we've got to be prepared. In chapter 8 of Revelation, in addition to these four horsemen being unleashed and and all this this pain and suffering that that Satan brings upon the earth, there in in, in Revelation 8, it talks about seven trumpet blasts. And each one of these trumpet blasts brings on natural disasters, earthquakes and floods and tornadoes, and even though it doesn't mention it, things like you know, hurricanes and, and major blizzard snowstorms and mudslides, and you, you name it. We deal with those things, don't we? Again, we want to use the book of Revelation to only think about the future, but we deal with pain, we deal with natural disasters right here and right now. And just turn on the news, you, you see various parts of the world that are experiencing these things. And, you know, it's easy when, when you're going through, through various, you know, pains of your own or, or pains of natural disaster and, and start to ask, why me? Why, why is this happening to me? That brings me to the third point. And that is, I can't take it personally. Whether it's a natural disaster or it was brought on by the wickedness of mankind, God is not singling you out. Again, we live in a fallen and broken world, and sometimes we bring pain on ourselves. Sometimes, you know, pain comes because of natural disasters or other things, and we're just collateral damage. It just, it happens. And so instead of asking, why me? Instead, ask this question, how can I move forward from this suffering? And I think the, the greatest way to move forward anytime you have pain in your life is you've got to do the fourth thing that I put there on your outline, and that is this. I must find purpose in my suffering. Must find purpose in my suffering. Again, let me remind you, Satan hates you. You know, through the years, I've had people as I'm out and about, and they're like, oh, I hope I go to hell one day because I'm going and I'm going to party with Satan. Hey, it's not going to be a party. Hell is Satan's punishment. He doesn't rule hell. That's his punishment. He cannot be redeemed, though. He knows that's what's going to happen to him. And so here's his vow. Here is his his mission. He's like, if I can't be saved, then I'm going to make sure that they can't be saved either. I'm going to do everything I can to destroy them, to steal from them, to kill the joy in their lives. That's Satan. He's bringing pain into your life on purpose. So here's what I want to say to you. Listen very carefully. If your pain is on purpose, then you've got to find purpose in your pain. Let me say that again. If there is a purpose for your pain, you've got to find purpose in your pain. got to find purpose. Can't just go around, oh, woe is me. Instead, you need to say, God, there's a reason that you allowed this into my life. Now, how could I take this and turn it around and use it for good? 
And my, my former boss, Rick Warren, he liked to say this, that your greatest ministry is always birthed out of your greatest misery. That's good, right? That whatever's bringing you pain, whatever's bringing you misery, God is saying to you, all right, there's your ministry. Because who better to deal and help a crack addict than a former crack addict? Who better to help somebody that's gone through a painful divorce than somebody that already went through a painful divorce and Jesus helped them to come through that and overcome? Who better to help somebody that's gone through a bankruptcy than somebody that themselves had gone through a bankruptcy and and Jesus helped to turn it around for them? Your greatest misery will always give birth to your greatest ministry if you allow it. If you allow it. John, he's, uh, he's talking in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, about, you know, how for thousands of years, people have suffered at the hands of Satan. And for thousands of years, Satan has been killing even the the saints. John writes this. He says, when the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony that they had given about him. And they cried out in a loud voice, holy and true master, how long before you judge and take revenge on those living on the earth who shed our blood? I mean, these people had every single right to ask, God, when? When will our blood be avenged? And God had every single right to say, I'm not telling you. It will happen. It will happen, but it's on God's timetable. It's his calendar. The closest that we get to an actual answer is in the next verse, verse 11. Here's what happens to those people. It says, each of the souls was given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until all their co-workers, the other Christians, would be killed just as they had been killed. Now, again, white in the Bible always represents purity and robes represent wealth. It's almost like God is saying to him, be patient. But in the meantime, here's a robe of purity that comes from the wealth of your pain. You're going through something right now. And if you're not going through something right now, something's coming down the road for you. You're going to have some pain. You're going to have some misery. But as followers of Jesus, remember he has clothed us in purity. And he said, take what Satan meant for evil, turn it around, use it for good. Allow your misery to become your ministry. But as you're doing that, you can't go through this process alone. So you've got to do the fifth thing that I put on your outline, and that is this. I must find my community. You know, it's easy to go through pain and, and think, oh, I'll, I'll just handle this myself. Or to think, you know what, nobody else understands what I'm going through. This has never happened to any, anybody else. I'm the only person ever. And so I'm all alone here. Or to think nobody cares. But that's simply not true. I mean, even as you look around this room today, there is somebody here. I don't know who they are, but it's somebody here that has gone through exactly what you're going through right now. And if it isn't exactly, it's pretty close. They already came through it because of Jesus' perfect power to save, his perfect power to heal. And so that's why you got to get to know each other, talk to each other, 
Not just about news and weather and sports, but really get to know each other. Because in somebody else's story, you're going to find healing for your own story. That's why we encourage you, get get into a life group. Do life together with other people. Come to the women's group on Thursday nights. Come to the men's group that's getting ready to start here on Monday nights. Just get around people, other people that are followers of Jesus. Do life deeply together. You could meet here, you could meet at a Starbucks, you could meet in somebody's home. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's two or three people. It doesn't matter if it's 10 people. Just get together with people and start to share your story and encourage one another. Help one another. Find your community. Or I don't know, I have time for, you know, one more thing on the, on the calendar. Well, you don't have time not to do it. And here, here's another way. You could just start serving at Exponential. Become a part of a, a team. You know, one of the things I love about our worship team, and, and they do so awesome for us, and leading us in worship. They don't just come here on Thursday nights just to practice so that they're ready for you guys on Sundays. They spend time and they talk and they laugh together. They cry together. They, they spend time after practice is done just sitting here. Some of them sit on the stage. Some of them are sitting there on the front row. And they just do life together. And they share prayer requests with one another. And, and they pray with one another and for one another. And I always hear them asking, you know, Sunday mornings, you know, hey, what happened, you know, as a result of, you know, Thursday night we prayed about this. Any, any, anything happened? They're doing life together. And then you can do that. It's not just worship team, you know, first impressions team, children's ministry. Just start serving amongst people. And as you're serving alongside them week after week and year after year, you can't help but just to grow closer, to do life. So again, a big part of of surviving your pain is finding community. Number six then, I must release my right to revenge. Earlier we read about, you know, how there were great multitudes crying out to God, God, why are you allowing the people to get away with this? They inflicted pain on me. God, when are you going to inflict pain on them? Let me just say this. Just because God hasn't done something yet doesn't mean he isn't going to do it. There'll come a time for all that. In fact, John describes what that scene will look like in the future judgment. Revelation chapter 6, 15 to 17, this great judgment comes on the earth and he says, the kings of the earth, it's famous people and it's military leaders, hid in caves or behind rocks on the mountains. They hid there together with the rich and the powerful and with all the slaves and free people. And then they shouted to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the one who sits on the throne and from the anger of the lamb. That terrible day has come. God and the lamb will show their anger and who can face it. You don't want to be around for that. So again, step one, step two. Admit your mistakes, admit your sin, admit your failures. Get yourself right with Jesus, then stop beating yourself up about it and know that you're forgiven, you're saved, you're redeemed. Because you don't want to go through this. You're going, why would a a loving God do this? It's not like 
these people that it describes here never had a chance. These are people that knowingly, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, Jesus kept knocking, saying, come on, I want a relationship with you. He was wooing them in. His spirit was trying to draw them, and they kept saying, no, Jesus, no, 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 I don't need you. The book of Revelation is very, very clear that there will come a day that Jesus says, all right, I gave them every single chance that I could possibly give them. And now the end has to come. And there'll be this great judgment that'll come. And let me just say this. God's judgment is as perfect and as comprehensible and comprehensive as what his love is. His judgment will be perfect. Not perfect in a revenge sense, but in a, all right, you asked and asked and asked for me not to have anything to do with your life and I love you enough that I'm going to give you that very thing. Eternity without me. Because that's what you asked for. That's what you desired. Listen, God does not send anybody to hell. If you end up in hell, it's because you chose to be there. And the judgment will be fierce. Again, we we don't want that. But here's what you need to understand. Judgment and revenge... That's God's responsibility, not yours. His judgment and revenge, it'll come in His time, and it'll come in His perfect way. Your job with the people that have hurt you is to love them, to pray for them, to forgive them. So if you're going through pain and it was brought on by somebody else, give up your right to revenge and realize that God We'll bring that on at the perfect time if need be. Number seven. I must remember that I am remembered. Must remember that I am remembered. In Revelation chapter seven, there's a a scene. This is a, a, a prophetic scene of the future where there's these four huge angels and they're ready to come and just wreak havoc on the earth, to bring judgment on the earth. But then another angel comes and says this, wait, this is verse three, wait, don't do anything yet. Hurt neither earth nor sea nor trees until we have placed the seal of God upon the foreheads of his servants. Now you've probably heard of a, another mark that'll go on people as well, don't, haven't you? With the book of Revelation. The mark of the beast. Six, six, six. You're going, okay, good. We're going to get into that now. No, that's next week. Okay. <laughs> because today I want to talk to you about this more important mark. Forget about six, six, six. That, we don't even have to deal with that as followers. I want to give you this, this more important seal. It's the seal of the Holy Spirit that is put upon followers of Jesus. 
The very moment you pray and you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to, to come in and be the leader of your life, he sends his spirit to live inside of you, but you are also marked with the spirit. You don't understand how many times Satan and his legion of demons have wanted to destroy you and kill you, and they got right up close and were ready to do it, and the seal stopped them. And God said, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> that's one of mine. Don't you dare lay a finger on that one there. Now, does God sometimes allow some pain and suffering in our lives? Yeah. But pain and suffering is always to strengthen us and increase our faith. But most of the time, there is warfare, again, spiritual warfare going on all around us all the time that we don't even understand or comprehend. And the only thing that is protecting you as a follower of Jesus is that seal. And Jesus is going, they're one of mine. They're one of mine. Don't you dare lay a finger on them. Now the question then becomes, and this is a confusing thing because as people read through this, how many people get the seal? Because as you read the the book of Revelation here, it says that 144,000 get the seal. You're going, wait a second, 144,000, that's not a lot. You're going, yeah, I remember Jehovah's Witness knocked on my door one time. And they told me only 144,000 people go to heaven, which is sad if you think about it. I mean, billions of people that have lived all time in the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, only 144,000 are ever going to go to heaven. That's not what's going on here. Who is John writing to? Who's he writing to? These seven churches that were suffering, right? They're going through some painful times. And they have thought that, that, where's God? Where's God in all this? Why are we going through this pain? Does he even remember us anymore? Does he even know that we're here? And so John, he has to somehow, in this code that he's using, let him know that God's love is big and God's love is is wide and and God will never, ever leave you. He'll never forsake you. And he needs to do this like in all caps, bold print, italicized, in red with like 10 exclamation points at the end of it. Here's the problem. This is 95 AD. (laughs) Word processors haven't been invented yet. You can't bold something. In fact, the Greek and Hebrew doesn't even have punctuation. You can't even put an exclamation point. So how can he get this through to him that in the midst of all this letter, like, man, here is something I really, really want you to get. That it just screams and leaps off the pages at him. How how can he do it? He's like, I'll use a number. Now remember, we count numbers. They did what? They, They weighed numbers that there's spiritual significance to every single number. What was seven? You remember seven? Perfection. What was three? God and four was? Creation. So you you add those together, three plus four is seven. That when God entered into creation, it's perfection. It brings perfection in our lives. Three times four is? Yeah, some of you are like taking your shoes off. (laughs) Yeah, it's 12. 12 in Scripture always represents the the people of God. So when God, three, came into the creation 
four, it, it, it creates this all of God's people. So where do we see 12 in Scripture? The Old Testament, 12 tribes. New Testament, 12 disciples. Let's do something fun if you can do this in your head. 12 times 12 is? Very good. You're a smart crowd. <laughs> 144. The number 1,000 in Scripture always represents the multitudes. 144 times 1,000 is 144,000. What John is trying to communicate to him here is this, that God in his perfect love comes into God's people, not just some of God's people, not just 12 or 12, but 12 times 12, and not even just 12 times 12, but times the multitudes. That God remembers everybody. And he's trying to say this to those seven churches. God remembers you. He sees your pain. He sees your hurts. And I want to say the same thing to you guys, Exponential. I don't know what you're going through today, but God has not forgotten you. He knows who you are. He knows your pain. He knows your name even. In fact, Scripture says he knows the very numbers of hairs that are on your head, which for some of us, it's easier for him to count than others. <laughs> but that, that's God. God is a, a big, big God. And he knows you, and he cares about you. So don't ever think that he doesn't. And so that, again, that was just John's way of sort of, in all caps, bold, punctuated, saying, God never will leave you. God will never forsake you. If you'll go through these seven steps that we talked about today, I believe that your faith will be strengthened. You see, the, the, the goal of life isn't to reduce our pain. The goal of life is to strengthen our faith. And sometimes in order to be strengthened, we need the pain to come into our lives. Sort of like this. I, I've used this illustration before, but, you know, if you go to the, to the gym and you just take the, the bar, you don't even put any weights on the end, you're like, eh, like you're, you're just like, pump the bar up and down, up and down, up and down. You're like, yeah, look at me. Well, nobody's impressed by that. I mean, for me, I'm pretty small. Actually, just doing the bar may be something, but, right? But people aren't impressed when you're just doing the bar. You know what people are impressed by? When you load that baby up, you pick it up, and you push. And it's through that resistance, that's how you build muscle. And see, our faith is the same way. It's when we push through the pain, when we push through the resistance that our faith is built. That's why the Apostle Paul at one point said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of you don't want to lack for anything. Well, he says, you got to push through the pain. Consider it pure joy 
when you face trials of many kinds. Jesus put it this way. John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, in this godless world, you will, to, you will continue to experience difficulties. But take heart. I've conquered the world. Jesus has defeated the pain in your life right here and right now. Whatever it is you're going through, he has already defeated it. You just need to walk in that. Go through these seven steps that we talked about. Walk in it. But here's the good news. There's coming a time, and we read about it in the book of Revelation, that he is going to, for the last time, once and for all, defeat sin, sickness, disease, death, even hell itself. That's the end, and that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to come together to once again look at your, your word and just to see what it is that you're trying to speak to us through this book called Revelation. And Father, there is just so much confusion and so much imagery and various things that make us go, what in the world is happening? But Lord, help us to, to not make it more difficult than it has to be. Help us to, again, just use your book of Revelation to us as a template as a guide for how do I get through this pain. And as we read about last week, this is a revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. And he entered into creation. And because of his perfect and sinless life, not only can our sins be forgiven, but you can give us a brand new life right here and right now. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't yet started a relationship with you, that just right there where they sit, or as they're listening to this podcast, they would just pray a simple prayer and ask for your forgiveness, ask for your leadership. They would just surrender their lives, their will, over to you. And Lord, for all of us, whatever pain we're experiencing, help us to, to take responsibility, to admit our part in it, but then to, to not walk in it any longer and to take these other principles that we looked at and, and to just use them to, to get ourselves out of that rut that we're in, out of that, that painful situation and know that, Jesus, you are victorious. Why? Because those seven horns, perfect, the perfect power to save, those seven eyes, the, the perfect power to see everything and everyone You know us, Jesus. You know our hurts. You know our habits. You know our hang-ups that we have. Help us now because of that shed blood of the Lamb to walk in victory, not defeat any longer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.